Praise be to God. As we open the word together and we spend a great time worshiping through song, A.W. Tozer said that I can safely say on the authority of all that's revealed in God's word, any man or woman on this earth who's bored or turned off by worship is not ready for heaven. And as a kid, I definitely wasn't ready. I thought about singing forever and it's like, man, but when you know the presence of God, and you know the goodness of God and everything that he's got us through and why it is that we're able to know him and where he's taking us. And as we get to see this story, I understand more about what worship looks like. I understand about why Jesus came in his authority. When you think about authority, most people want it, but few people want to be under it. Right, It's always that employee who's always causing trouble because he never just can show up to work on time and submit to authority and get the job done. It's always the boss who's taking advantage, using his authority to, to hurt and ruin people. We're suspicious of authority. We don't trust claims of power thinking that it's going to help us through control because if we're honest, most of the time, authority is abused. We've seen parents mistreat their kids. We've seen bosses terrorize employees. Government leaders become dictators. With so much misuse of authority, it's no wonder that since about the 60s, there's been this societal pushback, challenging, opposing authority. That's where we get this idea of rebels or heroes and mavericks who strike out on their own or really the, the right ones being independent. And the phrase, stick it to the man, you know, I remember in middle school, I was like, yeah, we're going to stick it to the man. It's like, but who's the man? It's like, I don't know. I think that's probably my boss. Well, I need to get paid. Maybe I shouldn't stick it to him anymore. And, and it's this idea of what is authority, why do we need it, and yet we're at some level drawn to it or at least repulsed by it. Last week at Easter, we looked at the days after the resurrection and ascension, and if the tomb was empty which Paul's like, hey, there's over 500 people that saw Jesus alive with holes in his hands, hole in his side, hole in his feet. And then he ascended to heaven. Now he's reigning up there. And he said all authority. So we walk in this authority. And we saw Peter actually listen to Jesus and do what Jesus said, that he would do greater things than Jesus did when he ascended. So before they went to church, he's like, hold on, time out. If we're gonna go worship, we gotta make sure more people get to come into the kingdom this lame Larry guy needs legs. Let's come on in. And we saw the power of Jesus' name heal. And here today, it's the same tension of authority. Last week, we saw them get arrested because the religious leaders were like, whoa, time out. What authority? It's the same question the religious leaders questioned Jesus, rolling it back a few weeks. You're teaching in the temple, our temple, and we didn't authorize this. We didn't give you the authority. Where'd this authority come from? As a preacher who's fully human, clearly not divine, I can't speak as Jesus did. But I do desire to speak the truth that carries the same weight and authority. All of us who preach the gospel aspire to speak under that authority with boldness. Whenever you read scripture and you hear from the prophets or you hear Jesus or John the Baptist, it's, it's a little different uh, baptism experience when you read John's baptism. He calls out brood of vipers. He's like, hey, those religious people... You're like a brood of vipers making people twice the sons of hell as you are. I've never heard a pastor talk that way at a baptism. John did. 
Like that, there was a very interesting, like, hey, we got in-laws, you guys traveled from far away, yeah, you're a brood. It was like, whoa, John, easy, we got some family members here, trying to just have a nice baptism, little nice, you know, they're going to have lunch later, going to give them a lot to talk about, just calm down. I don't think we're going to get any baptisms tomorrow if you keep talking like this. And then Jesus, he just shows up in the temple and starts teaching the gospel. That's not 600 plus three laws to obey the 10 commandments. He's teaching a gospel. I put the notes in your notes with some verses you could look up to encourage you on what the gospel is, why he was teaching it, and why it offends them and offends so many today. First part of the gospel in four parts. The first is that God is the only true living and holy God made all of mankind in his image and likeness. Genesis 1:27 makes the male and female in his image so that all people could know him and enjoy him forever. It says, let us make man in our image. Psalm 14.1 says, a fool says in his heart, there's no God. And then us, obviously, some people are fools and believe there's no God because maybe hurt or pain because of sin. So us, people have broken their relationship with God through sin and because of our lack of submitting to authority, we want to go our own way and earn our way back or we feel like, you know what, we don't deserve God's forgiveness. We can't earn it. But that's the reality is that we deserve God's judgment. Romans 3.23, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And then 6.23, our transitional verse from us as sinners that God created for the wages of sin is death. But thankfully Jesus came to rescue mankind from the condemnation. What we earned by sinning is death. But Jesus came to bring us back the free gift of God's eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. God actually lovingly showed us his love for us while we're in sin. He put Christ on the cross in our place, Romans 5.8. Putting Jesus in that suffering place on the cross, dying the death we deserve, defeating death as he rose from the, the grave, as we celebrated last Sunday, in the powerful purpose. It wasn't just, yay, Jesus, tomb is empty. Let's talk about how many folds he had on the linen when he folded the grave clothes. You know, so many Easter services kind of leave it there and it's like, but we're in the last days. If we say Jesus' name, we know people might be, probably will be offended, but are we looking for the miraculous saving and, and, and healing and the, and the results of the gospel? And we see that the response is always the hardest part. It's easy to talk about what God has done. That's what the Pharisees had down to a T. It's easy to control people with religion, but could we look at the power of Jesus' name, look at the authority, and we receive that new life and be brought back to God in righteousness, that God requires all people everywhere, as, as Romans 10, 9 through 10 says, that we believe in our heart that Jesus is God's son and confess with our mouth that he died on the cross, was buried, and rose again. And then we turn from our sin and turn to him and we're saved. That's good news. That we as sinners, far from God, the one who made us in his image, as image bearers, came to save us and bring us back. And that changes our marriages, changes our relationship with friends, our bosses, changes what we do, say, and think, and we're becoming like Christ. But it's this word authority, where we don't want to submit. We don't want to come under authority. Authority, interestingly, when you, th when you think about it, it's, it's given. 
Hey, by what or, or who gave you this authority was the question they asked. Hold up, time out, roll it back. Where's your degree? Because we didn't sign off on this teaching. We didn't sign off on, on this way that it's by grace through faith you're saved. We have a 600 plus laws in that's just obey the 10. Let's talk about this. And interestingly for us, the most difficult thing that we face when the authority of our own kingdom is threatened, that's the biggest challenge. When you think about it, pride and selfishness, it's really at the root, we are the rulers of our own kingdom and we have our own authority and so we don't want to submit that. We have our own alliances with friends or we have political teams or, or businesses and, and it's this authority that the world is constantly trying to get us to see we don't have to submit or come under. We could just live our life however we want. I was in the grocery store the other day and, and this lady, sweet old lady, was in those motorized scooters, which I, I wish there was a little tutorial letting them know that they can, there's a throttle on there, man, open that thing up. And, uh, and she was kind of getting in and I was like in a hurry and, and I accidentally put a couple of things on the belt, you know, and she was still adding items. And so I was like, hey man, let me help you get some stuff out. So we get to the, the checkout and my son's kind of spinning it after baseball on a long day and and the, the clerk notices that and is like, hey, you have the authority. Like, go through another aisle and get out of here. It's going to take her a while. She's like three things on the belt, you know. I'm like, no, I have the authority to help her. Jesus came with all authority and said, guys, I've come to serve. I came to serve. I came to look for people hurting and hopeless and bring them back to me. I didn't come to be served. But all of our authority in the world keeps telling us, no, you deserve to be served. You deserve to do what you want to do, think what you want to think, and you don't have to submit to anybody, much less God. But when we come under his authority, all of a sudden we want to think like him and act like him. And, and Micah was a little confused. He's like, wait, we're doing what? I'm like, yeah, just put her tomatoes in the cart and it'll be better. And she was, it made her day. Her eyes lit up. She's like, whoa. And I'm like, this poor lady. How many people just run over her, run by her? And don't help her. But we're called to be under his authority. And our authority is always threatened when God says, hey, submit to me. We want to have it, but we don't want to submit to it. And that's what we see. Because we constantly are able to convince ourselves that we are right and our authority should never be challenged. But we get to challenge others' authority. And God shows us here in chapter 20, verse 1 through 2, where Jesus' authority is questioned. And they go, hey, hold up, time out. Who gave you this authority? In verse 2. And so he answers them, okay, which is how rabbis talk. It's like Yoda, Jedi mind, tr you know, Jedi mind tricks. They never just say, well, obviously God did. I'm God. Serve me. Worship me. Let's go. He's like, well, I'll answer a question with a question. You ready to play Judaism, you know, Jedi rabbi mind tricks. And so he's like, who, who gave John? Where did John's baptism get authority? Which they didn't like John, especially because John kept making fun of him. Like, it's like going back to the Twitter feed, seeing all those nasty comments John left. It's like, dude, don't bring John up. Like he's, his head's already been chopped off. Like I think that's in the past. But John pulled some, he didn't pull any punch. He said some harsh things. So they're like, oh, and they challenge Jesus' authority. They know they had not granted him authority to teach and preach in the temple. And while they didn't recognize Jesus' authority, 
they sure did want to hold on to their own authority. So they challenged Jesus, and he answers their question with a question. And then they pull back, and they form a little huddle. They're like, oh my goodness, I did not see that coming. Like, what? How did they not see it coming? That was how they played the game. And so there's the Pharisee who's super tight to the law. He's like, I got 603 laws to obey the 10. What are we going to do? The Sadducee's there. He's like, I don't even believe in the resurrection. I got really nothing to help with this conversation. And then there's a a Helen guy, Hellenistic Jew, who was all about uh, culturally Judaism, but financial game. So he played the stock market. He was all in the political circles, smoozing with who knows who, with everybody, and, and propping up Herod. So he's more the courts and the man's law. And so he's like, um, you know what? A lot of political conversations and, and trials, we just say, we don't know, or I don't remember. And so they're like, we'll go with that. Like, let's do, and maybe we've seen some of those answers recently in the news when they're interviewing people. Where did $5 billion go? I don't know. Okay, next question. You know, I wish I knew that was like a viable response. Like, my parents are like, why'd you steal the car and drive it into the tree? I, I don't recall. I don't ever recall that happening. Okay, hey, you know what? Forget about it. Let's move on. Uh, Where did the hundred dollars go from? I don't recall. And it's just a buy. It's, and so they realize, hey, the Hellenist guy's got a good angle here. We could we could do that. So that's how they reply. Yeah, you know, we don't know where John got his authority. That's interesting. I don't recall. And and it's and Jesus is like, well, then I don't recall either. And that's how they just end it. And you're like, well, that's interesting. Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. And it's that. Simple, but it's that powerful that he came and showed us how to love even while being attacked, how to forgive, how to be kind. And he says in verse six, but if we say, he says, verse five, sorry, backing up, they discuss with one another, if we say from heaven, he will say, why did you not believe him? In verse six, but if we say for man, all the people will stone us to death for they're convinced that John was a prophet. So if they say it was from heaven, they'd be guilty. But if they say he was just a man, everyone believed he's a prophet. So they were in between a rock and a hard place. Do you question or do you recognize Jesus' authority in your life? Or are you constantly, ah, it's a little harsh word, I'm not gonna really follow that. Maybe this is a little easier. I mean, I'll serve people when it's convenient and it fits, but really I want to be served. Jesus came and he was teaching the gospel and they didn't like that. So they questioned, hey, maybe you don't have authority. Maybe there's some errors in God's word. Maybe there's some things that God's trying to keep you from that would be good. Maybe you could figure it out on your own. And Jesus says, no, it's 100% submit to, to me and follow me. And so then we see they were silent and they, they needed really... Um, to trip him up, and the goal was to trip him up so they could catch him saying something that went against either the law or Rome. And so they tried to go with the law first, and they said, okay, so what authority? Oh, man, he got us on that one, because John actually, the people think he is from God, and if we say his power did come from God, then we're, we're on the hook for not believing. And so then they're like, okay, we need to regroup, re-strategize. But as they're talking, Jesus turns to the crowd and everyone and tells them this story. Starting in verse 9, he tells them a parable of a man who planted a vineyard. And so maybe the vineyard 
owner was like, hey, you guys got the grapes. We got the winery guy there. Send me the bottles of wine. And they're like, no, we're making way too much money to give you the fruit of your vine. And so the man in the story is symbolized as God the Father. The Father owns the vineyard, who repre- which represents his kingdom and the rewards of his promises. And the tenants represent the religious leaders of Israel. So the Pharisees, Sadducees, and the Hellenistic Jews. They're leaders of Israel. But they were not owners of God's kingdom. They're not owners of God's covenant. They were merely stewards who were given God his word. And they were supposed to share the gospel that God would one day send a savior. Instead, they took the vineyard and ran it for their own gain. So the three servants that were sent represent the prophets God sent to Israel to tell them, hey, you guys aren't supposed to be selling the wine for your own profit. That's for the blessing of God to share with the world. Stop. And so they rejected the prophets, rejecting God's message and mistreating them. And then the the son in the story represents the son of God. Jesus himself comes. And they understood this so clearly. That's why it says in verse 13, it portrays God as the owner asking himself, all the servants have been abused. What should I do? And interestingly, that response seems like God might be questioning realistically, I have no clue what to do. What should I do? Which, because that's how we ask the question, right? We're like, what should I do? I have no idea what's going to happen now. But Jesus telling this story is portraying God as saying, what more can I do? I'm the God who saves. I'm the God who's coming to redeem and restore what was lost. And so he says, what should I do? I will send my beloved son. Perhaps they will respect him. He's saying, what more can I do? Ah, aha, I'll send my son. They'll surely listen to him and respect him. In verse 14, but when the tenants saw him, they said to themselves, this is the heir. Let us kill him so the inheritance may be ours. Which that makes sense, right? You kill the son of the heir and he'll just transfer inheritance. That's exactly what, they were so blinded by their authority. They thought they could accomplish, they could take, by, by having their authority, they could take what's God's and call it their own. And then any authority that questioned theirs, they would say, no, 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 I got this. I'll just kill it. I'll just destroy it. I'll just remove it. I'll just believe that God doesn't exist. That, that way I'll just keep living my life however I want. And their response, because they're so blinded to this story, after reading verse 15, they threw him out of the vineyard, killed him, what then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? In verse 16, he will come and destroy those tenants and give the vineyard to others. When they heard this, they said, surely not. Surely not. You just killed the vineyard's son. What do you think he's going to do? They literally thought that they'd get the inheritance. They, they're like, no way. There's no way that that's coming to us. There's no way this story is about us. But it was. It was. God is slow to anger. But eventually he will get angry. He is wanting everyone to be saved, but eventually he's going to come and judge. And so that's why in these last days, as things get harder and difficult, the urgency to share the gospel, the reminder that Jesus came in the days leading up to his crucifixion, he's teaching, look, God's wondering, what more can I do? I'm gonna send my son. Surely then they'll believe and be saved. And in verse 17, but he looked directly at them and said, what then is this? That is written, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. 
the stone that woke everybody up. Literally. They're like, no way, we're not going to, no, it's, it's that bad. Like Jesus is like, I don't know how to tell you this. It's really bad. Like it's going to be so bad. Just wait till John writes Revelation. You're not even going to understand half of it. It's so bad. We can't tell you it's plain, but it's going to be bad. And he tells them this cornerstone because he grew up as a mason, carpenter. He didn't grow up with a framer, framing hammer, and a nail gun. That would have been too easy. It's, the, it's God, after all. He made the, the earth and rocks. He's like, I'm going to really bust my knuckles on stonework. And so he's like, hey, when you build a structure with stone, you need a cornerstone. And once they get that stone, everything's squared off that stone. Everything stands on that stone. But that stone's so big and so massive If it falls on you, you're dead. If you fall on it, you're dead. And he's like, it's going to be that severe. There's no other way to get to God except through me. There's no other truth except me. I'm the way, the truth, and there's no other life. If you fall on that stone, he says, you will be destroyed. In verse 18, everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces, and when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. He's so kind and loving and telling you, you will go to hell if you don't believe in me. It's the most amazing thing every time I read Jesus' words. He's so bold and saying, you're in sin. You think you're authority. You can just get money, have your kingdom, and have a great life. It's not going to go well for you if you keep living this way any longer. Let me put it in this kind of words. There's a cornerstone. If you fall on it, you die. If it falls on you, you die. The only way to be saved is to stand on it. The only way to be saved is to be built upon it. We see no one can safely reject the Father's prophets or the Father's Son, Jesus. How will we escape if we neglect such a great salvation, the author of Hebrews writes in chapter 2. We won't escape it. We'll be destroyed. So for those of us, can I, can I share those that you have yet to believe? I want, I want to use that term because I believe God will save you. God's been patient and gracious. And one day, soon, I pray today's the day, you'll believe. So the not yet believer, Jesus is inviting you. The only way to be saved is to stand upon it and believe that this is the true foundation, that his work for you on the cross, when he was buried in the stone, hint there, little connection, the stone was rolled over the grave, the stone was rolled away. And a lot of the type A people, especially moms, appreciate this example Jesus set for us boys and and men now. Folds his grave clothes and leaves them folded as he walks out. I think that was very hospitable and, you know, intentional of Jesus. I'm still trying to live up to that. But it's, it's amazing. Like, Jesus was never in a hurry. He had everything under control. And he's saying, look, those who have yet to believe, submit to my authority. Stand on the sure foundation. The author of, in Psalms says, how can a young man keep his way pure? By keeping it according to your word. Jesus is the word. By following Jesus, by believing in Jesus. And for the church, Jesus is the cornerstone. It's the foundation of our entire existence. Without Christ, the chief cornerstone, there's no building. There's no us meeting here today. As, as Paul tells the church in Ephesus, we've been built on a foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the cornerstone. It's in him the whole building is being put together and growing into a holy temple in the Lord. It's a spiritual temple, Ephesians 2. So how have you tried to avoid 
or been crushed by Jesus' gospel authority rather than standing on it. Because the gospel is by grace, through faith. And, and to receive it, those maybe today's the day you're going to believe, it's simply just believing in your heart that Jesus is Lord and confessing with your mouth that God raised Jesus from the dead. Then every Easter, we, we get everyone together, we look at that, and every Sunday we keep looking at that, and we go, man, as simply as we can put it, it's Jesus' name, is the gospel. Because he's the creator who made us in his image, male and female. He's the one who said, man, they really sinned against me. I'm going to come and save them. But one day judgment will come, and let's save them before that comes. What a gloriously kind-hearted, long-suffering, forgiving God. And so he's telling these people that are coming against him, trying to get him tripped up by his words to arrest him. But the people love Jesus. And so all of a sudden, in verse 19, the scribes, the chief priests, they sought to lay hands on him. They're so angry. You could just feel the tension in the temple. Like, we've got to arrest him, but everyone's like, we can't touch him because if we touch him now, he'd just shut us up. And then he just called, told everyone, this big cornerstone's going to destroy us all. So we have no play here. And that's when the Hellenistic Jews like, I still got one more for you. We haven't tried taxes. Let's try taxes. So they throw taxes at Jesus, which is hilarious because I'm like, Jesus just dropped the most compelling gospel and also told you guys, hey, it's not going to go well for you. You keep trying to live under your own authority, ruling and reigning Jerusalem and, and Israel. But this was all supposed to be the conduit for God's love to flow from God through his people to the world. So they're like, okay. We have to arrest him. We need to catch him in something. In verse 20, he said, so we can deliver him to the authorities, which we couldn't get him in our own law, but maybe we can get him in human law. Maybe we can get him saying something against Caesar because Julius Caesar's here making sure 2.5 million people behave themselves over Passover. And, and we have all these people here. So if he can say something against Rome, man, we'll, all we need is to, to get him arrested and then Everyone that praised him on Palm Sunday and was like, Hosanna, save us. They're going to say, kill him, save Barabbas. And they're going to want Jesus killed and Barabbas set free. So, 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 so the Hellenistic guy is like, dude, taxes. Just ask him if we can pay taxes. And the crazy thing is the history behind this. Because seven years earlier, there was a guy named Judas. Josephus, the Jewish historian writes, led a revolt saying, we're done paying taxes to Rome because it's a pagan governance that's not legit ruling over us and all of our taxes are going to fund pagan worship. So let's not do that. And they killed Judas, but the sentiment was still there. Their revolt was still there. And so they had this, hey, once we throw this softball to Jesus, do we pay taxes or not? Everyone's going to know, well, if you're for Rome, then yeah, pay taxes. But if you're against Rome, then you're going to say, no, I'm leading a political revolt and everyone will get their, their pocket knives out. But listen to what Jesus says. After they had sent spies in verse 20 to figure out what to say, they butter him up with verse 21. Teacher, we know that you're such an amazing speaker and you teach rightly and show no partiality. Can I have an autograph? Was the missing translation in there. But truly teach the way of God. They're like, you're so good. Thinking he's just a man and they can trick him. But he's not. He's the God man. And so verse 22, when they ask, is it lawful for us to give tribute to Caesar or not? Just a simple yes or no question would have done. But Jesus said in verse 23, he perceived their craftiness and says to them, show me a denarius, which is one day's w um, wage. 
whose likeness and inscription does it have? The denarius had Caesar's face on it, and the Jews would never have carried it because that's committing idolatry. So he's like, hey, go home or talk to a buddy, get a denarius, bring it here. And when he did, he asked, hey, whose face is on there? Again, going back to the first point of the gospel, God makes us in his image, in his likeness. And he's like, dude, you guys have roads that are actually going to be probably some of the best roads ever built. Like, give your taxes to Caesar. You're going to need some roads because the gospel in a week needs some, some traveling routes to get around. So just pay your taxes to Caesar. He's going to make the Roman roads and the aqueduct system. And that's how my gospel is going to get out. I'm going to use human means. And so he, he says, yeah, I know taxes are rough, but pay them. Because in the time, they were thinking about the one-tenth of grain tax on everything that, in, in the harbors and the borders and the city gates, the 1% in, income tax on every wage that was made. And that's what the denarius was, that one day's wage, the, the, the payment that Joseph and Mary had to come pay in Bethlehem was from the census. And the same sentiment was there that Jesus shut down that we have today. It's like, oh, you went to Disneyland or, or Starbucks and you're supporting, you know, what are you going to do with Bud Light now? How's your funds going to support this cause or go against that cause? And it's interesting in our day where people are coming out, hey, that was a cool post, but go buy Bud Light. Come on, we need, our capitalism's crumbling. It's like Jesus had the same tension culturally. What are you going to do with your money? Jesus, how do we spend our money? He's like, hey, it's a denarius. When they tax you on it, it has Caesar's face on it. Give to Caesar what's Caesar's. Give to God what, what's God's. Let me just be clear. The gospel goes above and beyond. And the gospel goes beyond borders, culturally, racially. I haven't come to fix a political party. I haven't come to set up a new governance. I haven't come to overthrow Rome. In fact, Rome's going to overthrow the temple in 70 AD. So I'm crying for you guys. Like there's so much that God allows us to suffer to see our worship is not based on our financial gain or financial loss. Our worship is on our soul. And Jesus came to save us and set us free to live this new life. And so he says, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. In verse 26, and they were not able in the presence of the people to catch him in what he said. But marveling at his answer, they were silenced. What do you say to that? It's like, I, I mean, yeah, I need a road to get home and that makes sense. Like when they need to fix potholes, which maybe some governments could do better at that than others, but they need some resources. It's like, okay, we're going to do that. And, and the government is intended to take care of the evil and to protect those who are having evil done to them. And so Jesus' authority, his challengers were silenced. He points to the coin and says, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, but give God what is God's. This is so huge. Jesus outwits them and divides the question perfectly. John 2, 25 says that Jesus knew what was in the heart of men. The Jews were so wrapped up in what they were controlling and the authority that they had either been born into or they had taken, and Jesus is saying, no, it's my authority you need to come under. It's my authority that I've been given this gospel to preach that will give sight to the blind, legs to the lame, raise the dead, bring all who are in sin 
together under my name and build you in my temple. Are you going to be crushed by the cornerstone or stand upon it? Some things in this world belong to the world. Give them to the world. We belong to God eternally. Romans 13 talks about how the Christians in the Christian church have always been in that at odds. And that's why the, the last point of our mission statement that Jesus prayed for believers. Be in the world, not of the world. It's going to be tough. It's going to be awkward. You're going to have to figure it out. But just because you know me and you, you find God, finds God finds life, now you grow to think, look, and act like me, but you're still going to be in the world. Because as believers... That's why everyone wants revelation and the rapture. It's like, get out of here. But no, we're supposed to serve and suffer. Jesus said, hey, come. I've come to serve, not be served. Come serve one another. In the time we have left, here's how to love when it hurts. And that's why he's saying, look, when Acts 5.29, like we talked about last week, happens, and the government's like, don't say Jesus' name. Jesus says, I can't wait for that to happen. Then you get to say my name and tell them why you believe in me and all the good things I've done for you and show my love on the biggest display possible. See, Jesus came with authority. And the question for us as we wrapping up, are we focused on the hurt or on how to receive healing from the Lord? Because we've all been hurt by authority. We all have sin that we've done or has been done to us that's hurt us. And are we coming under his authority, allowing him to heal us, allowing the gospel to set us free so that we can go serve one another? Well, we're in the world, but not of the world. Well, we pay our taxes, but are we giving to God what's God's? He's like, you guys are so wrapped up in this, you're trying to arrest me on these false charges. We jump ahead to Luke 23, one through two, when they do have him arrested, brought before Pilate. They make the false charge in verse two. They began to accuse him saying, we found this man misleading our nation and forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar and saying that he himself is Christ, a king. He was the Christ, but he wasn't saying that we should forbid giving to Caesar. So for the not yet believer, the gospel is free it's as easy as drinking water, just receiving it, believing that Jesus died in your place to set you free. And it's his authority that you walk in that freedom and forgiveness, no matter what you've done. As I was thinking about this authority idea, uh, I was reminded when I went back to the, the headquarters of the Christian and Missionary Alliance and they had all their relics and historical things of all these great men and women that have done amazing things for the gospel and, and in among all these relics was this little three ring binder and it had just a pencil notes of, of names, salvation dates and baptism dates and, and as, a, as I picked it up, someone said, oh, let me tell you about Hector. I'm like, what's, what's the deal about this? And he's like, well, Hector grew up, he was a Hispanic immigrant, didn't have a lot of education, a lot of teaching. And so into his high school years, he felt the call of God to, to go be a missionary and, and pastor and, and evangelize back into Mexico. And so he went through all the training and got done with it. And they're like, hey, your preaching's horrible. Your pastoring's really even worse. And your counseling's like atrocious. You're not going to be a pastor or missionary for us, but you can help keep the books. Like I'm sure you, you know how to spell pretty well and do addition. And he had the authority, the calling of God. And so sometimes men miss it. But he wouldn't stop. And so he left that day and he disappeared off the radar for about 25 years. And then one day he showed back up to the headquarters with that binder in his hand. And that binder had every single person that he had the privilege of leading to the Lord. And so 
he would go throughout Mexico, walk into a village and say, hey, how can I serve you? He would begin with prayer, that blessed card we've passed out. Begin with prayer, God, where are you taking me? God would take him to a village. He would ask questions. Hey, what's your spiritual beliefs? How can I help? He'd eat meals with them. He would serve them. Let me help you plant corn. Let me help you build a house. And then he would share the gospel and they would respond. And so he wrote down all their names and baptism dates. And he delivered that binder and said, I've run the race, here you go. It's God's authority on us. There's no certificate. There's no men's approval that we're looking for. We're, We're running for the audience of one. And so as we go today, may we share the hope that God put in us when he saved us. As we submit to his authority, proclaiming that he's alive. And it's not our gospel, it's Jesus. We're just pointing men and women to it. So the not yet believer, may you believe today. Because we were once in your shoes, hungry, lost, looking for hope, and we found it in Jesus. And come to find out that's the only place we can find it. And for us believers, Jesus is alive. He's the cornerstone that we're being built upon. Matthew 28, 18 says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to us. So we need to go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey, observe in all that I've commanded you. And behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. So as we close, I'm gonna close in prayer. And then we'll have a time of communion then I'll come back up and wrap up. I wanna give us a time for those who've maybe yet to respond to Jesus as your Lord and Savior. Let's pray. God, we thank you for today. We thank you for the opportunity to open your word and be reminded that it's your authority. It's your authority that we dare to dream of going to the nations with the gospel. It's your authority that gives us truly no other choice as we submit to you. God, we pray as believers that we would have the hope and not be deterred to see men and women trust in you and believe and be saved. We pray now for those who who are trusting and saying, I'm a sinner and I believe that Jesus died and rose again to pay for my sin. Who, Who are saying that and declaring that today, that they'd be set free and they would share with us that we might walk with them and encourage them, Lord, as we go out in your authority, Jesus, sharing the hope we have to be saved. In Jesus' name, amen.